All right, we'll grab your Bibles and open them up to Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, For those who were with us last week, I mentioned that um, this is both the last sermon before sort of 20 chapters of proverbial sayings in the book of Proverbs, but it also works uh, with last week as a summary of everything in the book up to this point. And one of the dynamics that we have seen in the book of Proverbs over and over again is this encouragement to seek wisdom accompanied by a warning against foolishness, right? So get wisdom avoid folly. And this isn't just the book of Proverbs, as we just saw in the reading of the law. Um, God, God does this with blessings and curses. Do this, don't do that. If you follow my commands, you will experience blessings. If you choose to do what you have been told not to, you will be cursed. Now, anyone who's raised children knows that this is kind of an important aspect of disciplining and training uh, human beings, like this push-pull I mentioned. There's a need to point kids in a positive direction, to tell them what is right and what is good and what they should be doing. But along the way, we also need to shield them from the dangerous things that they are drawn into. And so God gives us a model here for parenting and leadership. People need a healthy balance of both direction and warning um, to keep us from the reactionary extremes. Human beings need to be encouraged to do good and given reasons not to do bad. Now, over the last three weeks, we've been looking at the first part of this. Uh, Lady Wisdom has given us a well-argued case for making God's truth central to our life. She has told us that seeking God's wisdom is the appropriate response to understanding our own weakness. Right? She started by pointing out the the glory of God, and, and that should overwhelm us. That should humble us. It should put us in our place so that we rightly listen to guidance from the one who is over and above all things. Aligning ourselves with God is necessary due to our own inability. She also told us that seeking God's wisdom is what we were created for. Right, The second half of chapter 8 was all about God as creator and what that means for the laws that he gives. He is the one who sets the order and keeps the system running. And so he becomes the only one that we can trust to truly tell us how it works. And so aligning our lives with God's order makes sense because he is the order. She also told us that seeking God's wisdom is the only way to act, sorry, is, is the only way to act in a way that is holistic and consistent. We saw this last week. Human wisdom cannot consider all the variables and consequences. We are continually addressing the problem in front of us only to create many more. And so in one sense, this should be expected. We are human after all. And yet what God has given us in his wisdom, what he has provided for us, is the insight for us to act in ways that are far above our IQ level. Now along with all of this, again, encouragement towards wisdom, we're also going to get a final warning here today. And just as wisdom has been embodied in a person, Lady Wisdom, so will foolishness. And so today we get to spend some time with woman folly, uh, which acts for us as a picture of all that we should be staying away from in our lives. So let's get into it. Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 13. It says, The woman folly is loud, she is seductive, and knows nothing. All right, we're going to stop right there. We learn three things about woman folly in this short introduction. 
and they are not compliments. Uh, it tells us that lady, or that, sorry, that woman folly is loud, she is seductive, and she knows nothing. Um, and we've talked about all three of these as we've moved through Proverbs, but we're going to spend a little bit of time on each one today, um, specifically to see them in contrast with Lady Wisdom, right? We've gotten who Lady Wisdom is now. Now we're supposed to see this as another alternative, a contrast um, that is being offered to us. And these are not just two different options. Um, they offer, what they offer comes to us in completely different ways. So the first thing it says is that woman folly is loud. Now, as we've made the case for Lady Wisdom, she, it has told us that um, she calls in the streets, she makes herself known, and we have said Lady Wisdom herself is not quiet. We've said that that means that God's truth is available to us. It's all around us. It's, it's in creation. We are never far from God's wisdom, and in a sense, we can attain it. it it's there for us to find. The reason we don't act in line with it is because it's drowned out. Um, other things are louder. And one of the things we see that's louder is woman folly. Now to say that folly is, is loud is not to say that she is more correct or better, but simply that in the world that we live in, what is foolish is easier for us to find and to believe. Now in the time the Proverbs was written, God had really only revealed his truth, his, his specific revelation to a small number of people. Right? Truth was in creation, yes, but, but all of these other ways of imagining the world were dominant. That is why we look back at those times, and again, we, we can look back and go, man, it was a little barbaric. Uh, there were a lot of crazy and, and I think violent things happening in the world because in many ways, God's truth hadn't come in to clear it out. Now, as time passed, the influence of God's way grew. Soon it was spread out across the world, and while folly was still loud, there were more and more people giving ear to Lady Wisdom. In this, we saw great advances in, in, in thought and technology that it can be directly attributed to God, to people wanting to glorify God, and that is why they did what they did and brought these things into the world. Now, over the last 500 years, there has been this drift now back to um, giving much more of an ear to folly, allowing this woman to have more and more of our commitment to the extent that we now live in a world where the norm is folly. And so it's hard for many in our world to even consider God. He seems foreign to their understanding of the world. And we have become used to this. It's normal for us to think that people will automatically reject the call of the gospel and a belief in God. And so it's important for us to know that this is not how it has always been. There was a book written about 15 years ago um, where the author's purpose was to explain how woman folly has gotten so loud. This is how he describes the purpose of his book in the intro. He says, The change I want to define and trace is one which takes us from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. In other words, there was a time not even that long ago, I mean, 500 years, not that long ago, um, when the way that human beings imagine themselves to exist and find meaning required a higher power. Now, not everyone agreed on who that was, uh, but the world could not be imagined as simply a cold, hard scientific fact. It was a place filled with mystery and wonder, and it had to be held together by something or someone bigger than it. 
But that has changed. And this book, it's called A Secular Age by a guy named Charles Taylor, attempts to track the conditions and shifts that makes these changes possible. Now, that book is 896 pages of philosophy, so I'm not going to get into really all that it presents. But I do want to look at one piece that he really focuses in on in that book, and that's what's called subtraction stories. Taylor says the common way of us to think about the shift from belief to disbelief as a culture is as a subtraction story. This is the idea that as a society, we we no longer need what God offers. We no longer need lady wisdom because we can find wisdom on our own. Right? God was necessary for those ancient people because, well, let's be honest, they weren't as smart as us. But now, we don't need God. And so the idea is that we can sort of subtract God from the shared understanding of who we are. And when we subtract him, what we will be left with is wisdom itself. Without all the layers and confusion that religion adds to our lives. And so people see the rejection of God as a freedom, right? No longer being hindered by all the demands of faith. And Taylor's argument is that this just isn't actually how life works. The reason why people do not see a need for God is not because they have somehow outgrown him or found a truth that proved him wrong. They have simply decided that there is another narrative, another voice, that will give them what they want. And so it's not a case of subtraction, it's a case of replacement. The source of wisdom has simply changed. And this new wisdom is going to have its own set of rules and restrictions and limit freedoms. James Smith wrote a book about the other book, this is getting really confusing, um, But in his book about a secular age, he sort of describes this process this way. He says, subtraction accounts, right, these are ones that explain the secular as merely the subtraction of religious belief, as if the secular is what's left over when we subtract superstition. In contrast, Taylor emphasizes that the secular is produced, not distilled. Which is to say you don't come to ungodly belief, you don't come to secular, secularization by simplifying your worldview or deconstructing it. You come to it by converting to something else, by choosing another voice to listen to. And so the voice of woman folly is the one that aligns the truth that is produced by the world with what we want to believe. We are then conditioned to believe in worldly wisdom over God's. This is what Smith said means when he says it's produced. What Proverbs means when it says it's loud. What makes it loud is that lady, or lady, woman folly sorry, basically is the voice that we hear coming from all around us. It's the agreement that the world has come to, that this world is better off without God. It is not only what we hear out there, but it is in many ways what we have been produced and conditioned to believe ourselves. And what this means is that we're, we're always going to be faced with the cross pressures of being a people who are trying to hold on to lady wisdom in a world of lady folly. Again, it's not just something out there. This is the basis of how we have all learned to think. And so the loud is a challenge to us because it never goes away. The loud is difficult because it is continually ringing in our ears, asking us, did God really say? Is this really what God wants? Offering us an alternative to his wisdom. 
That brings us to the second descriptor of woman folly. She is seductive. This simply means that what she offers is attractive. Right? She doesn't come to us and offer us something that we are not drawn to. No, instead, as we have just said, she is both shaping our desires and then offering us what we want. Which makes it an incredibly difficult challenge because, again, we're not fighting against something out there. We're not just trying to keep it away from us. We're fighting against something in here. We're fighting against our very passions. And so we can't just trust our instincts. We cannot just follow our heart because we all have been indoctrinated into folly. And so whether we want to admit it or not, our sinfulness means we are part of the problem. So what are we to do? Well, a few chapters ago in the description of the young man being enticed by the harlot, um, one of the things that I said was a, a prostitute is much less tempting when we see her as a threat to what we hold most dear. In other words, the secret to not being seduced by folly is to love something better. And the more we invest and engage with God's truth, the more that we see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, the more that we see the Bible as the lens by which we view the rest of the world, the weaker the seductive lure of folly will be. Now this vision of seduction brings with it a certain level of cunning and trickery. We've seen, again, in the descriptions before, um, Lady Wisdom, or late, I keep saying Lady Wisdom, woman folly adorns herself. She plots, she plans, she's orchestrating how to trap us in her way. Now think about that in contrast to how Lady Wisdom is described. We saw Lady Wisdom offer and call, plead even, but in no way at any time was anything that she did manipulative. This is not because Lady Wisdom does not care, but because she doesn't have to add to what she offers. What she offers us, in truth, is everything that we need on its own. And so she doesn't need to market or spin or propagandize, because adding or altering her truth would be diminishing it. Woman Folly does, though, have to seduce and manipulate, because the truth that she offers has deficiencies. It's lacking. She has to kind of paper over the cracks to make it seem like it is better and more than it actually is. Which leads us to the third trait attributed to her here. Woman folly knows nothing. We've said that she's an alternative voice, a different perspective on what to think and believe. Here now, the author of Proverbs makes it clear that this alternative worldview is not based in truth. It's being offered by someone who knows nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any aspects of truth in it. If, if, if what she said was obviously a lie, we wouldn't be tricked by it. We wouldn't be lured into it. No, to say that she knows nothing means at the core of her wisdom, what our purpose and meaning are and what we should trust in as ultimate, these are made of straw. Or as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, these, this is a whole belief system built on shifting sands. And this is because her, belief, her beliefs don't give us any insight or, or assistance to not continually do damage to our lives. Her folly keeps us trapped in our own sin and self-perpetuating destruction of ignorance. I said last week that ignorance is damaging because it doesn't consider the collateral damage or, and creates unintended consequences. What woman folly offers us does not free us from this. 
She knows nothing that would help us to avoid the problems of incomplete knowledge. And so listening to her, following her, is like the blind leading the blind. She has something to offer, and yet it isn't something that provides for us what we lack, which is a cohesive truth that holds the world together. She, like us, is making up stories to connect the dots. What we need is insight. The insight, the wisdom that comes down from above. That is both other than worldly wisdom, but is also complete and ultimately leads to shalom, which is the perfect balance of all relationships. What Woman Follies offers us here is what we already have, a limited, ignorant, incomplete perspective. We have been offered something much better. And her loud and seductive voice is fooling people into believing that what she offers is a viable alternative. That it's just another source of truth. You can go to God for truth, or you can come to me for truth. She, she offers it as an equal view. And so the warning here is not to not be tricked by the lie that is being spoken by a liar. And the author of Proverbs builds out this in the next section. Starting in verse 14, it says, She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat at the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are, going on, who are going straight on their way. She says, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. So, again, for those, of, for those who have been with us, this is similar to what we see Lady Wisdom doing, sort of sitting there and calling to those who are passing by. Folly takes a place in the town and invites those who pass by to choose her over the other path. It says those who are on the straight path, she, she, she tries to lure them to what she offers. Now, we've already looked at the deficiencies of what she offers, why it does not measure up. But I want to spend just a couple of minutes here on her sales pitch, right? There's all these people walking by. This is her call. This is her sales pitch. She says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Which is to say she is preying on a very specific person here. Those who are simple. The people who will divert, who will turn to her, are those who answer to the name simple. Maybe they don't answer to it. They probably don't know that they are simple. But it is the simple people who will actually hear what she says and go, Whoa, that sounds wise. And so the question that we should ask is, What makes a person simple? Um, Because I want to know how to not be simple. The Hebrew word that's used here is used 19 times in the Old Testament, uh, three times in Psalms, once in Ezekiel. The other 15 15 times it's used is here in Proverbs. And so this is a big concept in Proverbs. It's never used in a positive way, to be clear, um, for those of you who are minimalists and are like, simple is good. No, simple here is bad. The simple is a person who is naive, inexperienced, and thoughtless. Those are some of the different ways that that word is translated. Um, in chapter 14, we're given some clarity on what it means to be simple. So Proverbs 14, 15 says this. It says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So the simple is a person who believes everything. To be simple, then, does not mean that you're dumb. It means that you have no means to distinguish what is true from what is not. In a sense, then, being simple means that you are open-minded, absolutely open-minded, so open-minded that you're unable to sort out one thing from another. 
Now, we tend to think of being open-minded as a good thing, um, as it makes you able to listen to ideas and thoughts outside of your own. And I would say in that sense, it is good. Right? The world does not mean more closed-minded people who never consider anything outside of what they have already established that they believe. But being open-minded should not be an end in itself. It is not itself a virtue. Having an open mind is a way to come to truth. And so merely taking in knowledge is not enough. You actually have to know what to do with it. And as I've always said, this has been proven out. We, all now, we now all have all of the information of the world in our pocket at all times. We have more information than anyone's ever had in the history of the world. How's that going for us? Right? You don't just need the information. You don't just need the, the facts. You need to know what to do with them. Now, where am I? Um. <laughs> all right, we'll go with this. So, uh, one of my favorite quotes on this is from a guy named G.K. Chesterton, um, and um, well, I'll just give you the quote, and then we'll go from there. He says, uh, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. Um, now, I've used that in sermons before, but that's the sort of quote that you should use more than once. Um, uh, basically, what he's getting to is if you walk around and you are open-mouthed, open-minded to the extent that you're just letting things in, it's great when you're sitting in front of a feast, not as good when you're riding your bike through you know, a, a bunch of gnats, right? You're going to end up getting things in your mouth that you don't want in there. Um, now, it's actually another quote of his that I was reminded of this week, though, that I think helps us when we're going through the idea of how not to be simple, in, in another place, he said this. He said, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become b- capable of believing in anything. Right? I think that is the essence of what it means to be simple. It's that you don't shut your mouth around anything solid, and that makes it possible for anything and, and everything to be accepted, no matter how foolish it is. And the reason for this is because we need a way in our lives to categorize and order what is good and what is true, what we should be pursuing from what should be a, a, a total waste of our time. A simple person doesn't have that. In their life, everything is the same weight. And so things that don't matter and things that, that matter ultimately are basically put on the same level. And when you've eliminated the means to prioritize and make sense of the world, you make yourself susceptible to folly, to lies. You're open to everything. And so without a larger sense of meaning to connect to, woman folly then comes in and she appeals to our senses. She knows that when we've gotten rid of of, of anything outside of ourselves to make sense of the world, it's our senses, our feelings, our emotions that are going to drive us. Proverbs warns us of this in Proverbs chapter 21. It says, whoever loves pleasure will become a poor man, and he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Um, now, this isn't saying that we need to be aesthetic and, and, and basically reject all pleasure and be people who abstain from wine and other nice things. But what it's saying is, if you love them, they will control you. If you allow them to, to, to raise up to a level of importance that they do not deserve, where they should not be, they will become the thing that then rules over and runs the rest of your life. If you begin to believe that what brings you joy will ultimately satisfy you, You will consume and consume and consume until it destroys you. 
Proverbs has something to say about this as well. In Proverbs 25, 16, it says, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. That is self-explanatory and pretty graphic. Right? If there's nothing stopping you from continuing to go, you're like, this tastes good, it's sweet, I like it, why shouldn't I have more? Well, there's a point at which your body goes, I have had enough. Um, Same is true for basically everything in this life. On the theme of honey, in the same chapter, it goes on to say this in, in, in Proverbs 25, 27, and 28. It says, it's not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. All of this points back to the same idea, that we actually must discipline ourselves. We must take God's truth and bring it into our lives in a way that actually prepares us to interact with a world that is going to be offering us all sorts of things that promise us glory, that promise us joy, but ultimately will not satisfy We are naturally selfish, prone to seek our own glory and overindulge. And so it doesn't take a whole lot from woman folly to get us to feed our own passions. Every single person in the world will do this if you don't set up resistance to it. Now this sermon is titled A Life of Boundaries, um, and this is sort of where that comes from. As people who are sinful and live in a world that encourages and feeds sinfulness, we need to do some work if we are going to pursue holiness. Right? This very idea of pursuing holiness means that we must be working in the direction of righteousness or it will not happen. To go with the flow, to follow our hearts, to take it one moment at a time, right? this will not actually get us to where we're going. We will naturally follow the current into folly. And so part of the response, part of what we should do is what we've been talking about, pursue wisdom. Do everything that you can to read and understand the word of God, to build up your trust in him, to do what he commands. But the other side of that is this is the warnings. And the warnings remind us that all of that positive work can be undone by acting foolishly. And so we need to put protections in our life. We need to put in boundaries that maintain self-control. Knowing who woman folly is should make us careful to set up protections knowing that not having them is like building a city without walls. You're basically just allowing everything to come in, and that city in this time period is not going to last very long. Now, a few sermons ago, I talked about some of this in, in, in kind of the idea of lead us not into temptation, which we pray every week, um, that we should match that with efforts to actually limit the temptations that we are walking into. Right? We should organize our lives to give ourselves the best chance to live wisely. Right? In that sermon, I used the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about avoiding lust. But I want to make it clear that setting your life up to pursue righteousness is not just about sort of doing what you need to to avoid those extreme sins in your life. Right? The things in your mind that are like, if I get that figured out, everything else is going to flow No, it means looking at every part of your life and figuring out whether your foolish actions are getting in the way of setting up boundaries that will help you to not overindulge. To be simple is to allow the things of life to control you, to basically assume I can handle it as you are constantly handled. It's to live life unconsciously. To be so open to the world that you are filled with what is trivial and unimportant 
at the expense of what is wise and good for building up. The opposite of being simple is to be discerning and critical, to think through what you're doing and why you're doing it, to recognize your weakness and to protect yourself from your own foolishness. Because woman folly will lie and manipulate you. And if you're not prepared, you will get caught in her trap. Which is where the last part of this chapter goes, warning us of where that ends. Starting in the second half of verse 16, it says, And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So the temptation of woman folly is to promise you that sin will provide joy. Right? She tells the simple, the one who lacks sense, that to steal what is not yours will be sweet. Now, this is not just about theft. Um, it's about every way that we step outside of God's order to indulge and please the senses. Right? This refers to all manner of sin where we believe that going and taking, doing it our way, being in total control, that we... Basically, that we are better than what God has laid out. And the promise that she gives is there is a way to find satisfaction apart from God. It's the same promise we see in the garden. God's holding out on you. Now, along with this, we see she encourages secrecy to keep things in the shadows. Right? Your sin isn't anyone else's business. No one else needs to know. And so we see she's not only promising gratification, she's also promising a certain amount of justification. Not only you can do this, but you should. You deserve it. You deserve to be happy, and you should not let anyone, including God, take that away from you. Now, all of this is the idea that sin is fun, and it's how human beings find joy, and that restraining your desires is actually damaging, which has become a very, very popular idea. Right? In the world around us, we're told that all the time. Suppressing your desire, suppressing your passions, that's not good for you. Do what you want to do. We live in a time that perpetuates this lie. A simple person believes this because they want to. Because that's the easiest thing to believe is what I want is actually good. It gives them the go-ahead to chase their passions and fill their lives with foolishness. And the sad thing to me is I have watched a lot of Christians alter their morality, change what they believe God says to follow this lie, to believe this. It's based on the same idea. And it never ends well. I mean, people feel a certain freedom when they throw off the moral expectations of holiness. Right? In that first moment, they're like, oh, man, there were so many rules and now there's no rules. They believe that casting off these boundaries will provide them with fulfillment that has been promised. But as we saw before, they're simply trading one set of limitations for another. Because it's not subtraction, it's replacement. They're replacing God with something else, and that other thing is going to have the same sort of feeling of being told what to do over time. The difference is that rather than being hemmed in by God's wisdom... They're now burdened by the weight of guilt and shame that comes from sinful foolishness. This is the way that the chapter ends here. It says, He does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depth of Sheol. Basically saying she's inviting people in, 
And they, the people that are coming in don't know that all the other dinner parties are dead. All the other dinner parties? Din- dinner guests. We'll go with that. Right? This is where it leads. The Bible tells us the end of all these things is death. The promises of sin and the desires of the flesh will just continue to lead us further and further away from any sense of life and freedom. True freedom and fulfillment is only found in submission to Jesus Christ. And he promises us that if we put our hope in him and follow his way, that our life will find meaning and purpose. Not that it will be easy. No, we live in a broken world. We will suffer. Every one of us will suffer in this life no matter what. And if you're trying to avoid that, you're just going to be jumping from one thing to another, and even then, you're not going to win that battle. But what Jesus does is he gives every single thing, even suffering, a place. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he shows us that all things are headed towards redemption. And so this life is not about getting what you can out of it, but working with God and his order toward bringing everything back together that has been broken. We have been invited into this, not because we're great, not because we're especially self-controlled, but because God shows his grace and his power by using people who were once simple to display his wisdom. And so in Jesus and through Jesus, we have been redeemed. He has rescued us from being a simple people who respond only to our desires and passions. He has brought us into a family and he has set us apart as holy. That we should live lives that display the goodness of the one who has saved us. And so every week we come here, step out of the noise for just a second. And we come here to declare ourselves saved and complete in Jesus. We remind ourselves that we don't have to find our meaning and our purpose and all the other things that we're being told are going to give it to us. We don't have to find our satisfaction in the fleeting things of this world. And then we come and we confirm this in communion. In communion, we partake of the body and the blood of Christ, which seals us as his people, those who have been saved, those who have been given life. And so the lies of woman folly should not work on us because we are a people who have already been fulfilled. So as you come to the table this morning, come to be filled with assurance so that you can live a life of wisdom. Come to receive something better so that you can reject all of the things that get in the way of the good that God has promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. When we can shut out all of the the noise, when we can stop listening to all the other voices, and we can really focus on who you are and the promises that you have made to us, the choice seems so obvious. And yet, God, you know that, well, we don't live in a world where we can just shut all that stuff off. We are even one of the voices who is adding to the chorus. And so, God, you know that we are pulled in different directions. We are pulled towards all these different ideas of what is true. God, you know what we're going through because you came to earth and experienced it. And so we just pray that you would be with us in it. It's hard. We walk around with doubt 
all the time. We walk around with the question, what if, in our heads all of the time. And yet you have told us that what you offer us is better, that what you offer us is complete, that what you offer us is sure. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us to hold on. No, even better than that, hold on to us. We are not strong enough to hold on to you. Uh, Do whatever you need to do to keep us from falling into the lies that lead to death. You've promised you will. You are so good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.